we are in this series that we'll be completing um, in this month of June on Jesus, the cell leader. And it's really based on this book by Robert E. Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Robert E. Coleman, Coleman, the master plan of evangelism. But its main focus, you think, oh, it teaches you how to evangelize. Actually, its main focus is on how Jesus prepared his disciples in his cell group of 12 for ministry. And um, we've been looking at some of the important aspects of, of key elements of Jesus' discipling of his 12. We've had selection, how he selected them. We've had association, that he called them to be with him. We've had consecration, that they were separated and prepared for a special calling. We've had, last week we looked at impartation, about how the importance of the impartation of the Holy Spirit, some things are caught and not taught. And we were talking about how, you know, you can, you can learn a lot about somebody, but when you actually meet them, it's a big difference, isn't it? You know, you, you, you can do it. I was giving you the, um, I was talking to you about R.T. Kendall and how I had a chance to take him back from a, a meeting that he was preaching at. And so while we're in the car, he's just said, you know, just ask me whatever you want. And, um, you know, to, to, to learn things from him is one thing, but to be with him is another. Very precious time that was. And then I asked him some questions about his mentor, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I just asked him some questions, and he began to share things. And, you know, I've read biographies on R.T.'s mentor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in British history at Westminster Chapel. I've read biographies. But when you've got someone sitting next to you that used to be in his kitchen in his living room once a week and tells you little things like that, all of a sudden it's not just learning facts. It's actually imparting experience. You know what I'm saying? And so we looked at, at that last week, the importance of that. Now today we're going to have a look at demonstration. Demonstration. And the fact that when... And, and we're looking at these things because we want to see the method of the master. We want to see the method of Jesus. Everything that he did had purpose. You know, if, if you open the Gospels and don't think properly and just read it loosely, it just looks like Jesus is just wandering around, calling this fisherman, calling that tax gatherer, not really thinking about it, bringing together and going from village to village without little plan. And, oh, there's a demon, cast one out. Oh, I think I'll do a bit of teaching on this mountain. Oh, I think I'll go and feed the 5,000. And, and it may have an appearance to some that Jesus had no strategy. But on the contrary, everything Jesus did had purpose, purpose. And one of his greatest purpose in his ministry of those three years, of course, his ultimate purpose was to die for our sins. But if there was no one to minister the power of his death after his resurrection, what would be the point? But one of the main things you read when you read the Gospels is the amount of time and energy he spent with his 12. 
with what I've called his cell group. It is his cell group. I know he wouldn't use that word. It's a modern-day word, and we're a cell church, but I'm going to use that so, that so that we can see that the way that he trained them and prepared them, because he was out to multiply his ministry. And in our church here at KT, in our cell groups, we're out to multiply. We're not just out to have a Bible study or a home group. What we want to do is see the potential in each one of our cell members to be reached. And so leaders of cell group can learn a lot from Jesus in how to help their cell members grow and maybe one day be leaders themselves and maybe even greater leaders than the leader that they're, they're under. And so Jesus spent most of his three years ministering to 12 men. He ministered to the 70, he ministered to the multitudes. But we've said and emphasized again and again, and I won't go to the scriptures, but I just want to re-emphasize it, that um, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, coming into Matthew chapter 10, Jesus looked at the harvest and uh, looked at the multitudes, and instead of him jumping up and down saying, look at this, we've made it in the ministry, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people, it doesn't get any better than this, he, he was actually had compassion. He wasn't happy that he'd gathered a conference of multiple thousands. He had compassion. He said, you know what? They're, they're scattered sheep without a shepherd. In other words, I've got the thousands, I've got the multitudes, Jesus was saying, but they're not discipled. They're, they're just in a big gathering. And they're sheep without a shepherd. And then when you move into Matthew chapter 10, it's then that he calls his 12 to, them, to him and gives them authority. In other words, he, he was saying, look, pray for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest. And that's what he was doing. And then he called his 12 and said, you're going to do this. You're going to, multitude, you're going to do this. And Jesus dismissed the crowds. He didn't trust himself to the crowds. He didn't believe his success was linked to how many people he had at one time. Now, he loved the crowds because they were human beings, but he didn't trust himself to them. I mean, let, let's face it, when Jesus died, he didn't leave a very big church. He appeared to more than 500 at one time, but, but when it came down to it, before the day of Pentecost, really, there was only, uh, how many in the upper room? 120, 130? 120, isn't it? 120 left. For all the thousands of people, he'd been in, he'd been in king's palaces, all the thousands of people, all the great miracles. And he said, look, wait and have prayer meetings in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost, and night after night, it got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Those meetings got smaller and smaller till they could hold them in that upper room, and, and then there was 120. That was all that was left. All that was left. But thank God when the Holy Spirit came that day, there was 3,000 added in a day. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. And so what he does, how he treats these men is important because that was his main ministry. He put all his eggs in one basket, and that basket was his cell group of 12 men. He says, I'm going to go away. It's going to be over to you. I'll send the Holy Spirit, but it's going to be over to you. I'm going to send. I'm going to go to my ministry of intercession by the Father's right hand. So you're going to have to do it. You're going to carry it. And... We've looked at selection, associates, consecration, impartation, but now we're looking at demonstration. 
in John's Gospel, chapter 13. And just while we're going there, next week is going to be exciting because we're going to have RT throughout the day and he is going to be speaking on his new book, The Pursuit of Wisdom. It's going to be his new book. So that's good. Um, What did I say? John 13. Verse 15. Well, let me go to verse 13. John 15. John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was saying that, I've given you an example. Now, I know he was saying the washing of the feet was a specific example, but actually, Jesus was giving his disciples a demonstration, and an example, every moment of his time with them. He was showing them the way. He wasn't, uh, he, he, he wasn't just teaching them. He was showing them. He wasn't just saying, do this, do the other. He was saying, look at me. Let me show you how. Jesus' main ministry to his disciples was a show and tell. It was, let me show you how. He didn't say, go off and evangelize without first showing them how to evangelize. He didn't say, lay hands on the sick and and see them recover until he'd first shown them how to lay hands. He didn't say, go out and cast out devils until he'd first demonstrated how to cast out devils. He demonstrated. He showed them. He modeled what he wanted them to do. Some of the models that we we see him doing, and we could pick many from the Gospels, the whole of the Gospels is a picture of the model of Jesus. I remember one theologian, um, a Pentecostal theologian at that, who wrote in his book that Jesus is not a model for us. He was saying, look, don't expect to heal like Jesus healed. Don't expect to move in the power like Jesus moved in power, because he was the Son of God, perfect in every way, and you're not. And so Jesus, he said, is not the model for the healing ministry for today. Jesus is not the model. We, we shouldn't see him as a model because he's perfect, he's God, and we're, we're not. But that is so wrong. So wrong. Everything Jesus did was a demonstration. He said, greater works will you do. He was saying, look, as, as I have done, you go and do. Now, okay. We're not Jesus. And maybe some of the things he did we won't do, but it's not us doing it anyway. It's the Holy Spirit. So it's not like, and and it's God's grace. And so Jesus is the model. He set himself as the model. And by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, that is the model that we should follow. You know, those wristbands, what would Jesus do? That's very powerful. Because we should say, well, what would Jesus do? And how do you know what Jesus would do? By reading the Gospels. 
That's why the Gospels are so amazing. I love all, all Scripture, of course, and I love the Epistle, but the Gospels are so wonderful because it's what would Jesus do. It's what Jesus did, and what he did then he'd do today. He would do it today. He wouldn't come into modern-day Britain and say, of course, all the demons have gone now. We're far too educated to have demons. Oh, there's no need for healing anymore. There's no need for demonstration. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not saying he would be here with a long beard and a flowing robe. He might be wearing a suit or, or jeans or something like that. But the method and the model is for all time. So, for example, his practice of prayer. He didn't just say to his disciples, go off and pray, or even teach them the importance of prayer. He did. But he demonstrated prayer to them. They saw him pray. They witnessed his devotional life. They saw him practice prayer. They would wake up and they would be like, where's Jesus? Oh, he'll be, he'll be up on that mountain, won't he? Praying again. He always gets up early to pray. He demonstrated prayer. They heard him many times speaking to his father. It's recorded in the gospel that time when he was just filled with joy and he rejoiced and said, Father, I give you praise because you've revealed the kingdom to, to, to the little ones and the clever ones you've sent away. He's praying to his father. You have these great passages in like John chapter 17 where you have this extended prayer of Jesus and someone recorded it. He allowed them to come into his prayer life. Because prayer is also caught, not taught. When there's times when I've been with real prayer warriors, and you're with them and they're praying. And like I said, you know, it's, it's a little bit like we were talking about last time when we were speaking about impartation. Demonstration often brings impartation. There's times when, when I've been praying with a great man or woman of God, not necessarily a famous person, but a great person, and they begin to pray. And you think, my God, what is on that prayer? And the words that they use, and the, the way that they're led, and the spirit. I learned to pray at Kensington Temple. When I came down here in 1990, and I went to my first Kensington Temple prayer meeting, I didn't know what hit me. I didn't, we used to, where I was from, we used to sit in a, in a, in a circle, and it was very quiet, and, and someone would say a few words, and somebody would say a few words, and it was quite boring, and it was all right. Here, people were like, they were like, it looked like they were war, it was looked like warfare. I didn't know whether to call the fire engines, the police, I couldn't, you know, my first, you know, the Nigerians were praying. I thought, what is this? And, and, and it was caught, I caught something from that, you know what I'm saying? And sitting with people and others that knew how to pray and you're with them. And they're praying. And, and, and they're demonstrating their inner prayer life. And as they're praying, you're catching it and you're going, my God, this is the sort of prayer that, that gets results. He taught them principles of prayer, of course. He taught them the model prayer, didn't he? Our Father, the model prayer. But he didn't just teach them principles. He demonstrated his prayer life. I mean, just think of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And, and we would never have known of Gethsemane if somebody hadn't witnessed it, although they nearly didn't witness it, did they? Because they kept falling asleep. 
And, and even then, Jesus said, come on, keep awake. Come on. Why? Well, there was two reasons. He wanted their support. He wanted them around him in, his, in, in that Gethsemane experience. He wanted their support. That was the first thing. But secondly, he wanted them to witness that moment of final consecration. Father, if this cup can pass, may it pass. But not my will, but yours be done. Three times. He wanted them to see the blood coming out of his skin because he was so praying this thing through. He wanted them to see. He wanted to, to model. He, his whole life is a demonstration. Not just for them alone, but that's why we have scripture. So you can go and you can see what Jesus is like. You can read the Gospels and you can see how he deals with things. You can, nearly every circumstance of life that you will come across, in one way or the other, Jesus faced it. Jesus had an answer for it. He emphas his emphasis on scripture as well. You, you, you read... You read the Gospels, you see the disciples saw that this, this man knew the Bible. The Old Testament scriptures were important to him. He, there are 66 references to the Old Testament in his conversations with people. 66 direct references and over 90 allusions to the Old Testament. Well, we know he's referring back to the Old Testament. That's a lot. That Jesus, Jesus demonstrated that he was a man of the word. I mean, what if he'd just come along and never referred to scriptures? What if he'd just come along and said, I am the son of God, and here are the miracles to prove it. But he was a man constantly going back to the word of God. His knowledge of the scriptures, he demonstrated the importance of knowledge of the scriptures. He was not fumbling, trying to find what verse he wanted. He knew it. It was part of his life. He'd learnt it. The authority he gave to the scriptures. Remember said, he said in John, and scripture cannot be broken. When he retold them, he told them about the time he met the, the devil. And that the battle he had in the wilderness with the devil during his testing or temptation, it was settled by scripture. The devil and Jesus did not fight with swords or pistols. But the way that they, they, they fought was by scripture. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And the gloves are off. The, de the, devil, the devil knew there's no point pretending that the Bible doesn't have authority. The, the devil thought, oh, I can't mess around with you, Jesus. I can't pretend that, you know, the Quran is true, not the Bible. The devil, knew, the devil knew the gloves are off. He said, we both know. We both know scripture. But he did try, didn't he? He thought, the only way I can try and beat you is by using the most powerful uh, weapon in the world, the sword of the spirit. But of course, when Jesus wielded the word of God, and when we do, under his guidance, when Jesus wield, wields the word of God, it's the sword of the spirit. But when the devil wields the word of God, there's no spirit on it. It's just a dead letter. So when, 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 when he said to Jesus, you know, throw yourself off this mountain, because the Psalms say that, that God will send angels, he won't let you fall to the ground. There was nothing on it. There was no power on it. It was that, that the devil couldn't use it. But Jesus demonstrated how important the word of God was. 
and that his ministry did not contradict the Old Testament scriptures, but in fact, the Old Testament scriptures confirmed again and again and again. He said, look, you search the scriptures for the Messiah. Don't you realize that all of those scriptures, they speak about me before Abraham was. I am. Scripture was so important to him because Scripture, to him, authenticated who he was. When he was a young boy, how did he learn who he was? Well, he had the testimony of his parents. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking about the power of testimony at the 7 o'clock service. Do you know that the Hebrew word for testimony, at its root, means do it again? I'm going to show you how, that time and time in the Scriptures, people set up a testimony because they know that there's going to come a time when that testimony will be repeated in somebody's life or in the nation of Israel's life, that the God that did it then will do it again. When we're calling on the Lord for a revival to come to our nation, we're saying, God, you've done it before, do it again. And we're looking back to the testimonies of previous histories, and we're saying, do it again. And Jesus understood who he was by the testimony of his parents. They told him the prophecies that were over his life. He understood by the testimony of the Holy Spirit that was directly speaking to his heart, saying, you are the Son of God. But he also understood who he was by the testimony of the Scriptures. When he was a young boy, as he learnt language and learnt to read and learnt to understand, he would go into the synagogue and he would hear them reading the Scriptures. And as he heard it, the Scriptures would be witnessing directly to him, you are that man. You are the Savior. You are Emmanuel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. When he first heard that as a boy, he knew he was the man. That was him. That was speaking about him. So he was demonstrating to his disciples the importance of prayer. He didn't just say, go and pray. He prayed. And he showed them how to pray. He didn't just teach them to pray. He prayed. Uh, Scripture didn't just tell them, go and learn the word. It was very much part of his life. Thirdly, he demonstrated his passion for souls. Jesus had come to win the lost and to make disciples. And he didn't just say, go out and witness while I stay here and pray to the Father. He demonstrated how to minister to people. He taught them how to win souls. Again and again, as you... You read the testimony of what Jesus did by the authors of the gospel. You see Jesus in many different situations winning people to the Lord. And how he, how he was a great fisherman of human souls. Think of that story. I can give you, I'm just giving you examples here. But think of Zacchaeus up that tree. That, that thief, that tax gatherer up that tree. And Jesus says, come on down. We're going to eat in your house tonight. Nobody could believe what was going on. Didn't Jesus know who this man was? And then through that story, and the way that Jesus dealt with this tax-gathering thief, he was demonstrating, not just saying, go out and witness, and here's the four points of the gospel, and this is what you do. He said, let me show you. Think of the woman at the well. Go and call your husband. Don't have a husband, no. You, uh, you've had five and the one you're with isn't your husband. And the disciples, what's going on here? 
and he demonstrated them demonstrated to them. He modeled. He, Jesus never asked anybody to do anything that he didn't already do himself. He never asked anybody to do anything. He practiced what he taught. And actually, his practice of what he taught was his most important lesson. Classes were always in session with Jesus. Uh, their association with him as they watched him, learned how he handled things. You know, you can read books on leadership, and I do, and you can read books from great Christians, and and you say, well, I want to be the best minister I can, so I'm going to read from other ministers, and, 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 and learn a lot, very, very helpful. But I tell you what, there's nothing like, like getting under the ministry of somebody that knows what they're talking about. I mean, I've had a relatively long apprenticeship, haven't I? 23 years serving Colin here in various capacities. Thank you. And, and you know, read books, even read his books, but to see him in action, to see him in action, to see what he does and how he does it, and to, and to see him model things, and to learn and to grow and of course, over 23 years, Colin has grown immensely. If you're not growing, you're, you're in trouble, aren't you? And I've grown, and we're all growing together. But just to, just to catch that, to do that. And, and you know, uh, people say, oh, it's such a blessing for you to, have, to be so close to such a great leader. And I say, yes, it is. It is, but it's also a great responsibility. Because not, not many ministers have an opportunity to get close to Colin Dye and to see what he's done and to see him working year after year after year. Some are out there and they've just got to make it the best way that they can. Do you know what I'm saying? So with that great experience, of course, comes great responsibility because to, mu- to whom much is given, m- yeah, much is expected. And to whom much is demonstrated, much is expected. And so that means that when we're in a, a ministry where things are taking place, where God is moving, where people are getting healed and saved, and of course we want a lot more, but, but when you're in a place where things are happening, uh, you, you don't turn around and say, oh, praise God for KT and who we are and what we're doing. Well, praise God for that. But much is expected. Much has been given to us. You know, the preaching and the teaching and the, the revelation of this house those of you that were able to be with us yesterday, for example, anybody with us yesterday, and and, and the you know and, and what we learnt about things and how we saw things and and the revelation of discipleship that God has blessed us with, we shouldn't just see this demonstration and think, ah, oh, well, we're Kensington Temple, we know better than you. On the contrary. We should be thinking, my goodness, so much has been given to us. R.T. Kendall given to us for six months. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what a blessing. Dr. R.T. Kendall and his wife with us for six months. The Bible school have had them. The Bible school's got them all next week. We've had them. We've had not only his ministry from the platform, we've had his ministry Behind the scenes, he's been with different leaders, encouraging them, speaking them, asking them. I mean, wonderful, but as wonderful as it is, God is saying, hey, 
What more does Kensington Temple want? I even sent you R.T. Kendall for six months. And I didn't just do it to bless you, I did it to prepare you, to give you the message of the midnight hour. The first church to have that message, and certainly the first church to have a five-message series on it. See, we have to step back and think, what's happening here? We've got to step back and think, what is being demonstrated and for what purpose? Can you imagine if the 12, and they did sometimes, Jesus is demonstrating all this, and they're going, hey, I'm one of the 12. Do you know who I am? I'm one of the 12. Not, not one of the 70, I'm one of the 12. Yeah, I, I walk around with Jesus. And they, were, they saw so much, and so much was demonstrated to them, not just the public demonstrations, but the private, intimate demonstrations. And what about the three? What about the core group, Peter, uh, James, and John? Whew, what they saw, what was demonstrated to them, what they saw behind the doors, behind in the inner office, in the senior minister office of Jesus Christ himself, what they saw, what they were privy to, what was demonstrated when he raised that girl from the dead and said, get everybody out except you three. When he said, I'm going up a mountain, uh, and the twelve says, shall we all go? No, just the three. And they saw him transfigured. And they saw Elijah, literally saw Elijah and Moses, who were in heaven, manifest on this mountain to discuss strategy with Jesus himself. And it was too much for them. And, and uh, Peter says, shall we build some tents, some tabernacles? So we, what shall we do? We don't know what to do. And, and what they saw... But can you imagine if they just thought, oh yeah, the good old days. Can you imagine if they didn't, there was purpose in demonstration. What we have seen, what we have seen demonstrated by the Holy Spirit amongst us and through us and from one to another, what we have seen is for our destiny. And so those disciples, everything that they saw demonstrated was for a purpose, because Jesus said, you see, all this is not just, we're mates. Twelve good mates. Well, they weren't good mates. They are always arguing, weren't they? But, and they're always saying, who's going to be best? Do you remember? Oh, I'm going to be best. They, they thought they could ride off Jesus' anointing without sacrifice. Do you know that? You know, his cousins, oh, came with their aunt. Oh, please say that, Either of us will sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. They were using their family connection. You know, auntie's here, their family connection. They, they understood. Jesus was demonstrating all this power, and they thought, I'll have a bit of this. I'll ride off this. When he goes, I'll be up there with him. I'll, ta I'll take on the multitudes when he goes. That's what they were thinking. Who's gonna Look at all these thousands. Jesus is not going to be forever. He keeps telling us he's going to go. Keep saying, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to be going very soon. Make the most of me. I'm going to go. I'm off. I'm going. I'm that was one of his major messages. I'm off. As soon as he started, he told them, I'm off. And they thought, oh, look at all these thousands and thousands of people. I wonder who's going to, who's going to be, be, inherit that. And, and, and Jesus said to them, you don't understand. Can you drink my cup? And they said, Yes. We are able. 
And he said to them, yes, and you will. But to say who is to sit at my right and left is not for me to say. He, it was not just about their own personal blessing. Of course they were blessed. But what they saw that others didn't meant that they had a greater responsibility. These 12 got great, great things, great demonstrations. Much of who Jesus was was shown to them and not to others. But it all was for purpose because, as we've said, to whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. And they didn't really grasp that. They didn't really realize that all that they were enjoying at the time, God was going to say, now it's your turn. And when you think of what the apostles did, amazing, amazing. And so in our lives and what we receive and what, what we see demonstrated, and it's like a visitation when visitations of the Holy Spirit come. And demonstrations of power and the Holy Spirit comes. Very holy things. Very holy things, demonstrations of the Spirit. Very, very holy. Very, very precious, a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is demonstrating for a purpose. It's not just having fun in the church. The Holy Spirit is demonstrating, he's showing because he wants to build the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't demonstrate anything, or didn't ask anything the disciples to do, unless he hadn't demonstrated it in his life. And do you know, people are looking for demonstration, not explanation. Yes, explanation, but really, at the heart, people want to see it. Yesterday, when we were talking to those that came to the cell day, one of the things we were basically saying is, look, let's not just tell people to get involved in cells. Let's not say, get involved in cells, you'll be blessed. Get involved in cells, you will grow. Get involved in cells. This, this, uh, and what we were saying is, don't do it. Show them what happens. Tell them the story, the testimony. And so we had this amazing testimony. Well, there was many amazing testimony of somebody that, had been in prison for 10 years and got released. And on his release, his uh, cousin said, you need to come to Kensington Temple and got in touch with a cell leader here who, who met the person. And then the person gave his story of the love that was demonstrated to him, the support that was demonstrated to him. And as we were hearing it, we were thinking, this is good. See, it wasn't just cell principles. Do you know what I'm saying? It was a demonstration of what can happen in a small group discipleship environment. Jesus basically said this, look, let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you how to pray. Let me show you how to use the scriptures. Let me show you how to reach out to the marginalized. Let me show you how to preach the gospel. Let me show you how to... Be obedient to the Father. I mean, think of John's Gospel. And Jesus demonstrated obedience to his disciples. Like I said, he never asked anybody to do what he had not done already. He was obedient to his Father. You know, Jesus demands obedience, doesn't he? And expects obedience. 
He expects it. He is Lord, not just Saviour. He expects obedience. And you might say, well, it's all right for him. He's Lord. He's King. And he's there saying, I expect you to be obedient. And, and if you love me, Jesus says, what is, what is love? I've said this a couple of times in this series. What is love? What is love? And Christians are always talking about love, 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 love. Well, what, what, what is love to Jesus? What is love? What is love's demonstration to Jesus in his church? What is love? He says, if you love me, you'll, <coughs> you'll obey my commands. Not, if you love me, you'll be all emotional during a worship service, and that's nice. Or if you love me, you'll be in tears when you read my book, the Bible. That's nice. If you love me, you'll speak in tongues. Now, all those things are great, but he defined it, said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And you might say, well, that's all right for you. You're the one that everybody's obeying. But we know that one of the prime demonstrations of Jesus' life was his obedience. I mean, his obedience. Just read it. It's demonstrated in the scriptures. It's recorded by those that saw it and lived with a man who was God, who was 100% obedient to the Father in all things. I mean, Jesus was a willing slave of his Father. Delighted to do his will. He said, I don't do anything. I could do anything, but I don't do anything unless I hear the Father tell me. I don't do anything. I could do a lot. I'm the son of God. I'm God. Second person of the Trinity. I am God, fully God, fully man. I could do whatever I wanted, but I choose not to. Why? Because I want to honor my Father. And I, unless I see my Father, I can't, I won't do it. I won't do it. Father, what do you want me to do? Father, what do you want me to say? Father, use me. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to drink this cup. Three times he prayed. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. Have I not been obedient to you in all things? But please, I don't, don't make me drink this cup. It, 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 it's, it, it's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of, cup of your judgment. Three times, so not just once. Three times. So he wasn't afraid to express his desires and feelings to his father. It wasn't some slavish obedience. It was sonship. And three times he said, Father, is there any way? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And then finally, he realized that his father said, No, son, I'm asking you to drink it. And he said, Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Wow. What a demonstration. What a demonstration. And this demonstration leads us to the next uh, word that we're looking at in Jesus' ministry to his 12, and that is delegation. He demonstrated so that he could then delegate what he had demonstrated. Freely you have been given, freely you have received, freely give. As the Father sent me, so I send you. In other words, everything I have shown you, I am the model, I have demonstrated, I have shown, I have not just taught, 
I have demonstrated my greatest teaching is my life and my actions and how I deal with things. And I, I did everything the Father asked me. But now, as the Father sent me, I am now delegating to you. The Father delegated to me, Jesus said. He delegated. He delegated his work on the earth. And Jesus acted in delegation. He was a man, God. He was God-man under authority. And now he's saying, now it's your turn. And I have demonstrated, Mark, Matthew 4, 19... I will make you fishers of men. His whole life, as he prepared to ascend into heaven, he was preparing his 12 because he was going to delegate the work I've started, you're going to finish. I mean, it's incredible that Jesus would have so much faith in people like Peter and Thomas. Isn't it incredible that he would have, he would have faith and that he would trust them in all, you know, they were, these apostles, they're not super apostles. They're just human beings like you and I. They're no better than you and I. They learned obedience, they grew, but they're no better. They are not saints any more than we are saints. They're not special, beatified. You know, you see models of them all around the Vatican. It's the wrong image. Is that you get these image of super apostles. In fact, Catholics pray to these super apostles. They can't do anything. And so we elevate these men that Jesus chose. We should honor them, of course. But we elevate them to a place where they no longer become examples for us. You see, it's not just Jesus that becomes our example. He is the, the great example. He is the great model. He is... The great demonstration, isn't it? But we find that those that follow him also become demonstrators. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, look at my life. Paul said, I'm not perfect, but look at me. See, see what I demonstrate and do what I do. When you read the book of Acts, it's amazing. Why? Because you see the demonstrations of the uh, apostles and those that follow Jesus. You see the wonderful demonstration of Stephen, first martyr. You see Philip at work. You see Paul at work. You see Peter at work under the Holy Spirit. You see Apollos. You see all these. And you look at them. And, and I said, you know, and we say, that's the model. You see, Jesus is the model minister. Because he's the son of God. He's the perfect model. But the book of Acts is the model for the church today. Well, if you're Pentecostal, that's, if you're a true Pentecostal, that's what you believe. Why do we call ourselves Pentecostal? Because we look to the Pentecostal book of Acts and we say, that's the model. That's the model. We need to get back to the book of Acts. Many other denominations, they don't say that. Many other denominations say, oh, of course we're not getting back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts was the infancy of the church. The church has matured with tradition and moved on, and although we've got things to learn from the book of Acts, we don't want to go back to the book of Acts. But the Pentecostal looks at the book of Acts and says, this is what we need. It looks at the book of Acts and says, this is the model. We need our, we need our Pentecost. We look at it and we say, Look how they prayed. We should pray. 
Look, they met in small groups. We should meet in small groups. Look, they, they, they had signs and wonders. We should have signs and wonders. We look to those early church members and we say, this is the model. They have demonstrated the model for church and we need to get back to it. And when you have the demonstration before you, that demonstration is now delegated. As Jesus sent them, so he sends us. And he's given us models and demonstrations. He's been preparing us. God is preparing you. And uh, Jesus didn't just send his disciples out immediately. It wasn't until about Matthew 10, verse 7, that he began to, to send them out. He began to put it, he, he first showed them how to cleanse the lepers, showed them how to preach the gospel. He showed them, showed them, showed them. Then in Matthew 10, 7 onwards, he released them. He said, now's your time. Now's your time. I've demonstrated. I've shown you. And now what you have seen, you go and do. And, uh, well, let's just perhaps end on that. It's a good picture. Matthew 10 of delegation. Verse. So he calls his 12, chapter 10, and verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came on the scene, you read in Mark chapter 1, that's the first thing he said. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as you go preach, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. In other words, what you've seen me do, go and do. I give you authority to go and do it. And then he says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals for a worker is worthy as food. In other words, trust God. Go out and trust God like I've trusted God. God will feed you. God will supply. He's your supply. So go and do what I've done and trust God like I have trusted God. I have demonstrated enough to you already to show you how I trust God. Now you go and trust God. And when you go into the city or the town, preach, and if there's a house that will welcome you, go there, and peace will come upon it. But if nobody receives you, then shake off the dust from your feet and leave it. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than that in the city. So he tells them, go there and, and, and find somebody and stick with those that are hungry for the message. And out of that, we'll, we'll, we'll begin a work. And he warns them, I'll send you out like sheep amongst the midst of wolves. Be, be wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. He warns them of the difficulties they will face, but they're not to lose their innocence. They're to keep that dove-like spirit that, leaves, that allows the dove to remain on them. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Go out two by two. And so he delegates, he releases them. He's giving them opportunities. They weren't just sent out on the day of Pentecost. They'd had practice. And God wants us to step out in what we know and to move forward. So 
here we've looked at demonstration and delegation in Jesus' ministry to his cell members. Next time we come back, we will be looking at supervision and finally reproduction, that they would bear fruit. But the demonstration and delegation. We need more demonstration and we need also delegation. We need to do what we've seen and model what we've known so that others can see in our lives because people will copy us. People are meant to copy us. People are meant to, to see the demonstration and follow it. But also we need to delegate. If you're a leader of a cell group here today, I encourage you, delegate. Let the people rise. Don't just keep them in your group, you doing everything. Grow them. Give them more responsibility. Help them get out and demonstrate. Delegate things to them. Let them grow. Show them and then delegate to them. Model for them and then say, go and do it. Our cell groups are not just places where we we just teach them stuff. Just teaching, Bible teaching, Bible teaching. It's not just places where the cell leader prays for the needs of the cell members. We want the cell members praying for one another. We want the cell members taking responsibility for one another. We demonstrate and then we delegate. Well, just to remind you, you can get this from the bookshop that the, the book we're focusing on in this series is Robert E. Coleman's The Master Plan of Evangelism. I know you can get this on the Kindle as well, and and this sort of backs up and goes a little bit deeper into some of these principles that we've been looking at. God bless you.